2: Hi, dumb listeners. I'm your hostwoman, recording in a cupboard at home because she forgot to do this bit in the studio, Hannah Farrell. We're going to have a very special Christmas episode of School for Dumb Women next week, but today we'd like to clog up your podcast box by introducing you to something very cool indeed. Last week, Caroline and I launched the first episode of a whole new podcast series called Sentimental Garbage, which celebrates chicklets and the so-called guilty pleasures you're done feeling guilty about. So instead of our usual episode of Dumb Women today, we thought you might like to try out episode one of Sentimental Garbage, in which Caroline speaks to journalist and author Lauren Bravo about The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets by Ava Rice, who also happens to pop in at the end of the episode. If you enjoy it, you can subscribe by searching for Sentimental Garbage wherever your podcasts come from. We'll see you next week for our Christmas episode of Dumb Women. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast celebrating Chiclet and the so-called guilty pleasures you're sort of done feeling guilty about. My name is Caroline Donoghue and when I released my first novel this year, I found myself being asked the same two questions over and over again. One, did I think of my novel as Chiclet and two, was I offended if it were called that? Which is weird because all the best women I know are also devoted fans of Chiclet and this podcast is dedicated to examining what's good, great and occasionally questionable about the genre. Today I'm joined by journalist and author of What Would the Spice Girls Do? Lauren Bravo and we're talking about The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets by Ava Rice. Hi Hello. Lauren. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm
3: okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to know why. what made you choose this book? I, oh God, I love this book. Um, this book feels like one of those kind of secret clubs because no one really talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, until, they're talking Until they talk about it. Until they talk about it, and then you suddenly realise that everybody you know has read it and adores it, um, and has just been kind of keeping it under their belts. I don't know why. Um, mm. Yeah, and I read it also when I was seventeen, and I think you know, A books, perfect age. Oh my god, to the perfect age. I mean, not least because the um, the main sort of protagonist is around that age. I think she's eighteen yeah. in the book. Um, but also the books that you read when you're that age, they They just stay with you in a way that nothing I have read since ever has. I don't remember books I read six months ago, but I remember Mm. this so vividly.
2: It's so true. And I remember when I asked you to pick a book or whatever, something you said to me was, um, you know, I often have these very lukewarm discussions about, you know, the man booker books that we're all reading and all that kind of stuff. But actually, people's expressions totally change when you bring up. A book like this oh my god people squeal it's, it's a completely, completely it's a one of squealing those. book and it's yeah. that one of those books where you come and just puts their hands on your body immediately
3: yes. <laughs> and they're like well we need to excuse ourselves yeah. to another room clutching at you <laughs> yeah. like we, are, we will be back in half an hour once we've cried it all
2: out
0: yeah oh um, my god so before
2: we get into it properly i'm going to have a brief sort of plot summary um, so the book is set in 1950s London and follows Penelope, who's this very shy 18-year-old girl and also happens to be the heir to this crumbling mansion called Milton Magna. And kind of quite by accident, she befriends Charlotte and her cousin Harry. And Harry's is this um, aspiring magician and he's in love with this American it girl called Marina. And in order to win back Marina's heart, he tries to bribe Penelope to be his girlfriend and make Marina jealous and of course they end up falling Mm -hmm. for each other along the way. Of course. Very to all the boys I've loved before, to all the aspiring magicians I've loved before.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I never thought I could feel as uh, intensely as I do about an amateur magician. I think that's one of the (laughs) biggest surprises of this book. Um, But yes, it's quite a... I mean, it's a bit of a trope, isn't it? The whole, Mm. let's pretend that we're in love and oh, whoops. And then all this pretending and that kiss wasn't real, but now it It is. is. Oh, now it is. Um, (laughs) It's really there all along. But it just, it doesn't feel like a trope. When you're reading it, it feels fresh. Yeah, and this is what really interests me
2: about um, the sort of
3: snobbery and dismissal
2: around chiclet in commercial women's fiction, which is that um, people use the tropes or the cliches as a way to damn it, as a way of going, oh, does she meet someone and then she doesn't think she likes him, but it turns out she does. Yeah, And it's like, well, the same tropes come up in fantasy, in oh, science action fiction, movies action, and action movies. Like, yeah, absolutely. Every genre, no matter how respectable it is, has tropes. And but for some reason, women's fiction gets the... Like the blunt end of the pool
3: cue, you know? Oh, completely. And it's because we use the word trope and not tradition. Yes! Right? Like yeah. it's a tradition and potentially it is a tradition because it's something very universal that all people experience and can relate to and... Um, Oh, just it makes for a lovely story. Right. You know, and it does. What I really like to talk about is, because
2: um, I, when I told a few people um, the books that we're covering for this podcast, everyone's very interested and obviously everyone has their own opinions and what should be covered. Um, but when I mentioned this book, I had a few people going, well, that's not chicklet. Mm. Um and I and once I read it, I understood what they meant because it is literature to me. Like it's like it's, oh, yeah. it's very it's in, exquisitely written. I think it's a complete like it's one of the best books of the 20th century, 21st century. Yeah. But the way it is packaged, and I'm looking at my version now. It's very pastel, mm. very pink or whatever. And also, if you look within the copy, there's all these like illustrations. I know.
3: Now that placed, placed in it, yeah. That, that's the, so. The, we've both got the tenth anniversary edition. Um, so I had to go out and buy this last week because I have lent my original copy out to so many people and not got it back, which is always the sign mm-hmm. of a good book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny. I remember. It was a Richard and Judy book club book mm-hmm. in 2005 when I first read it. And I remember watching the episode of Richard and Judy where they discussed it. And Richard Madeley making a massive fuss about the fact that the pages on the original copy were pink. Oh, were they? Yeah. So the not inside, but the um, the outside of the pages, if you can imagine, were a kind of dusky rose pink. Color. Right. And uh, there was a little kind of cartoonish illustration of a girl on the front. And it looked even um, probably you know even more kind of overtly girly than, than this edition does and this one looks overtly girly yeah and it's also got um, it's got a forward by Miranda Hart which a page long forward yes the exact length the forward should be absolutely <laughs> and she, yeah she just gets in gets out she's like this is good it's I like lovely it it's thumbs up Miranda Hart and, I, and that made me chuckle as well because I thought well if you're talking about kind of shameless commercial yep. popular figures Miranda Hart you know yeah, yeah. Uh...
2: <laughs> but what's so interesting? Because like something, um, Marion Keys. Marion Keese is always asked, you know, oh, your books are. If you listen to her Desert Island Discs, she talks about how um, she doesn't mind that her books are given pink covers and have have high heels in the covers or whatever, because she says if they get to more people, mm. it. I don't. She doesn't give a shit how they're packaged. Yeah. And with this book, it, it it almost feels like the publisher was like, everyone needs to read this book, and if we have to like go complete like supermarket fiction route like packaging it in this incredibly girly way
3: if that's what it takes for people to pick it up yes then who cares who cares you know? absolutely and it's like a delicious surprise when you get it a few is. pages in and you're like oh this is really good like yeah yeah not just like there's nothing guilty pleasure about it it's just an exquisitely written coming of age story absolutely um and I think it's interesting as well because part of the reason I reckon people don't think it's chick lit is because it's um set in 1954 1955 but also mm. borrows very heavily from fantastic writers of the first half of the 20th century yes so you're Nancy Mitford's Stretfields. Stretfield um, Nancy Mitford was definitely the first person I thought of oh yeah and Dodie Smith like I Capture the Castle it's got yeah. you know many many similarities um, but it's done in such a beautiful way that it really sits alongside them it doesn't feel like a pastiche it feels like it
2: like there, there, there's some bits in it that are so like that lovely kind of eccentric Mitfordy oh, sense of humour like yeah. Julian the Loaf Julian the is Loaf is the most like 1930s English thing ever completely so for listeners
3: <laughs> What do you mean they don't know what Julian the Loaf is? Do you to yeah. explain what Julian the Loaf is? Um, so Harry, uh, the, the amateur magician who is our kind of, you know, anti-hero, well they won't, they figure, um, when he was a kid he kept a loaf of bread in a cage because his mother wouldn't <laughs> let him have a rabbit and it was called Julian the Loaf and it became part of the family and it's slightly ambiguous as to whether Julian's even still around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a decade on in the book because there's one bit where he sends a postcard saying, please feed Julian. Um, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so true. <laughs> it's, it's that beautiful like, British eccentricism but also that very real,
2: very tender thing of like, this is a private joke we've been doing for 15 years and we will never stop.
3: Absolutely. And doesn't every family just thrive <laughs> yes. on those things, you know? Um, yeah, I think it's, so it's got all those ingredients, the, the kind of the crumbling aristocracy. Mm. The I mean, I realised actually while I was reading it that my very favourite subgenre of book is poor but posh. Mm. Like oh, give me a book about a posh family that have no money and they're cold and they're wearing big socks. Oh and yes, <laughs> because you and know everything's falling down around. Everything's them. falling down. So uh Noel Stratfield, obviously ballet shoes and the Bell family were two of my favourite books when I was a kid, and they very much fit with that. Things like the Railway Children, poor but posh. However, will we make ends meet? But we still have a cook. <laughs> yeah, no we still have they still Mary. We <laughs> still have Mary, and they've got John's who kind of drives them to the station and back. Yeah, and um. Yeah, obviously I Capture the Castle is very similar in that respect. Um Evelyn War even, like Vile Bodies is one of my oh, favourite yeah. books. And that's very it's much very Evelyn War even. It book. is. It's like a junior Evelyn War. It is. Yeah. Kind of eccentric aristocrats, uh, you know, dining at the Ritz but they can't afford to pay the heating bill. Yeah. Yes. And that, that also
2: that very th- thing that you, you could never imagine people doing now that are sort of like, oh, well, I'll, of course, I'll go to lunch because so and so will pay. And yes. that sort of that presumption that somebody else <laughs> will pick up the
3: tab. I mean, I still do that. <laughs> <by you>. um, <laughs> but then it's funny because uh, it's for all its Englishness mm. and, you know, and it's very self-aware in its Englishness. And uh, a lot of the book is about these kind of crumbling stately homes. But then the other scene going through it is America.
2: Oh, and the sort of burgeoning of America and the colossalness of it,
3: the shadow of it kind of looming over the whole book kind of thing. Yeah, and the the birth of the teenager as well and this idea yes. of America as this kind of intoxicating, sparkly place across the sea that is the home of modernity and everything new and exciting. Yeah. And that's obviously something that, you know, you didn't get in those original books from the time no, so much. No, they don't
2: have the benefit of hindsight, those books, yeah. whereas Ava Rice very much did because she wrote this in the 2000s. 2005, yeah. And it's so interesting because when we start off the book and it's very like a lot of refers to the action of writing books.
3: Yeah. So it
2: starts off and she's like, um, I met Charlotte while waiting for a bus. What a sentence to write. <laughs> As if I always waited for the bus. And sort of, we have this character who like has been alive for 18 years but has never lived a day in her life. Yes. And she meets the Charlotte. Um, when w- Literally, Charlotte is like... Um, do any of you want to come to lunch or something? Yeah. She
3: Looks at a at a at a bus stop for the people. Let's take a taxi. And, Let's take a taxi. Yeah. And she's but she's targeting Penelope. Yeah. Like she sees her and she knows that she wants to take her to lunch. And then yeah. before she knows it, she's in a taxi having an adventure. And that adventure start like is that that is the moment that begins
2: her whole life really her whole yeah. like she comes online in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Do
3: you know what I mean
2: <laughs> like? got a little green light next to her name like Penelope is online from the moment she meets Charlotte after a year you you really get the sense and I think it's why even though it's a period novel you Mm. connect to it in such a deep and personal way is that this girl has been sort of like driftwood, do you know what I mean? She's yeah. ne- no, no one's ever really engaged her or spoken to her in a significant way, and then that feeling. And I think everybody got that feeling when they were a teenager of being chosen by someone really remarkable <gasps> because they yes. think you're remarkable too. Yes. You
3: know, and oh, there was something that really came back to me quite strongly when I was rereading it this week, and it was that idea of those kind of juvenile friendships that are forged very much through a shared love of a culture or a thing yes. particularly when you feel that you are the only two people in the world that really understand that thing even though there are millions of fans though, you're the only ones who get it You really get it and so yeah. in the book it's Johnny Ray which yes. is just the loveliest detail as well because I think did you know about Johnny Ray? never heard of him no. no right so neither had I before I read this Johnny Ray is this kind of forgotten um pop superstar that Mm -hmm. was massive in the early 50s and girls used to scream and faint, you know, Mm -hmm. there's this brilliant scene in the book where they go to the London Palladium and they see him and um the most like it's the real crescendo of the book oh that it is scene, it know? is i've actually yeah i've high- I've underlined a load of bits in the book that oh, i thought i could i could read out maybe definitely. it's um if you yeah please do at any point yeah would well, you want me to <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah actually let's go to that palladium scene yeah
3: though. okay if that's what the bit you've underlined i mean god it's you know the whole chapter is just fantastic but she just captures so perfectly what it is to be in the grips of that first kind of adolescent obsession and, you know, that sort of swooning. Um, We jittered for Johnny's arrival with the blissful, magical urgency that one can only feel when one is young and modern and full of desire. Desire, it was the only word for it. Occasionally an adult face swam into view, an usherette or someone selling ice cream. And I felt the gap between us, the brilliant youth Quakers, the teen mob... And them, the sufferers and the 40-somethings, open up like a great chasm separating one species from another. They might as well have been 300 years old. They might as well have been from another time entirely. They were nothing like us. Oh, isn't that just gorgeous? Oh, the the hair (laughs) on my neck is just standing up. Yeah, and it's so funny because it really made me think about the friendship that I had when I was 17 and I read that book for the first time. And I was the same age as they were. And um, I had a best friend and our interests were very much, like our friendship was forged around not so much 1950s pop music, but The Strokes and Kings of Leon yeah. and oh, fancy yes. No Fielding and, you know, boys in leather jackets and skinny oh, jeans. the, the Libertines for me. Completely. Yeah. And and we were just obsessive, but to that giddy kind of fantastical yeah. extent that you are at that age where we just lived this rich fantasy life. And it wasn't really even about the boys or the music. No, it was never about the boys. No. Like, because you just assumed that they were completely out of, reach and you'd never get the boys anyway yeah yeah but it was like the vivid uh fantasy life that we kind of wove
2: together you know this yeah and and it's very much like that's what her and charlotte first bond over the like oh jo- they're very much our johnny like yes. you know we're both going to grow up and marry him and even though they're a little bit too old for that yeah. and <laughs> it's kind of a private joke but it's kind of completely sincere absolutely um, there's, there's something else wrong
3: with it yeah well i think female friendship particularly it lets you stay young in a way yes do you not think like when the rest of the world is kind of pushing you to grow up and for Penelope and Charlotte particularly you know they have their the mother and the aunt figure yeah. who are desperate for them to marry a rich man even at 18 you know yeah, that is yeah. on the agenda um, and it's urgent and so for them I think sharing that love of Johnny Ray is a way of really protecting their youth
2: oh that's such a good point yeah and, and, so and when good you're at reading. reading it <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> Um, and what I love about it as well is that they never apologise for it. No. Because all the whole thing with girls liking things is that it it gives men an excuse to say that it's dumb. And mm-hmm. that's actually what whole Chicklet is about. Everyone has that moment when they discover that their reading tastes are not popular with boys. Completely. And then they sort of start reading other things they start reading fucking Fahrenheit Dostoyevsky or whatever yeah oh god completely but they never ever even like as the book goes on and like Elvis Presley comes in and like Harry's more into jazz and that kind of stuff and jazz plays a really interesting role in the book (laughs) like Charlotte and Penelope are like no Johnny Ray is our person yes and will never apologise for it absolutely their dedication is that sincere yeah he is for us
3: And I think that's part of it as well. I think with pop music, um, you know, that idea that something is specifically for you and he is singing to them. And that is so special. Like jazz is not for them, you know, and and I think they sort of recognise that. And um, I think, yeah, there's so much in the book generally about trying to, them trying to find their place in a very sort of, Interesting time in history. They're yes. post-war. Um, they grew up with the war. They'd never really known any any different, mm-hmm. um, but they were too young to really be impacted by it, um, or to impact it. You that's know? true. Yeah, they couldn't go. They couldn't um, collect for you know war bonds or whatever. They yeah, couldn't fight. They couldn't go off and fight. Um, and it was all over. You know, when they were kind of still still pretty young. Although Penelope does lose a father mm-hmm. in the war, um, but there are lots of references in the book to kind of feeling as though you know, that the war generation will never understand them. Um, yeah. And almost the guilt, I think, of of them. They're the generation that have never had it so good. You know that. And they're meant to go off and live these incredible, sparkly lives because they can. But no one knows what that life should look like yeah. yet because it hasn't been defined. Exactly. And their parents are still sort of clinging so the, desperately their,
2: to Their parents before. are kind of... Penelope's mother is one of the most fascinating characters in this um, because you meet her and... You hate her. Yes. Um, I can't can't remember her name. It's a very unusual name. It's uh,
3: Talitha or Talitha. Talitha? Yeah, Yeah. Talitha.
2: Um, She's very kind of cold. She's a cold woman who um, was the most beautiful woman of her generation, Mm. um, but is now in this crumbling house that she's trying desperately to sort of keep together or to keep running. Yes. And the great love of her life died in the war. And she has these two children, Penelope and
3: Inigo, Inigo. Who she is fond of, but detached from. Yes. They remind her, I think, a lot of of her husband. Yeah, and, and she says terrible things to them. It's it's
2: the height of passive aggressive mum behaviour in books. Like, oh, completely. And her her daughter just feels like such a troll next to her delicate, beautiful mother with the black hair and the gypsy eyes yes, and all this. Yes, but then as the narrative continues, you really understand who this woman is and like one of the moments in the book where I actually I, I cried a couple of times reading oh, this I really did yeah. and I'm kind of getting a bit emotional thinking about oh. it now but um, rationing ends and Talitha says oh
3: I suppose it's a good thing but I, I, what if we forget what if we forget
2: and it's like, I don't know why that destroyed yeah. me, but it did. Oh, no,
3: absolutely. I think the thing with her as well is that she was so young. So she had Penelope at 17. Yeah, yeah. She got married at, at 17. And there's a brilliant line quite early on where um, Penelope says, I think her youth scared her because it reminded her how much more living she had to do without my father. Oh, God, yeah. And that really comes to define the character as well, that she's she's 35, which, you know, when and I read it... looks great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Really keeping it tight. As we all know now, that is your prime. You're just, you know, you're just about to start kind of living your adult (laughs) life. But she's had this whole life and 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 then it kind of stretches before her without this one love and i think that mm. that's it's so tragic and that really kind of imbues everything but at the same time she has this kind of shot at redemption in a whole new world and it's interesting so one of the things that um, talith is very sort of sneery about is america yes. and american culture and pop music and mm. um and it's very
2: much the whole thing of like how um, American culture enlivens her children like Penelope mm. and Nico, it really gives them agency throughout the book they go from being these very staid country children to being these really independent people almost through American through culture America yeah and her, she's got this great fear because um, who I f- really feel is coded gay and oh, it's yes. never talked about, but it feels like he's queer. Yeah, no, I agree. He is the first person in England, basically, to hear Elvis Presley. And all he wants to do is to be a musician and go to America. And this is like, rather than um, Talitha being like, oh, it's a silly career idea. She is so wounded at the idea yeah, that America things. will
3: snatch her children away from her, yeah, you know? Completely. Um, yeah, I, do you know, it's funny, I was thinking when I was reading it, when was the last time that America held that kind of appeal?
2: <laughs> oh my god! If someone told me like I'm moving to the States, I'd be like, okay, Why your funeral? <laughs> it is among the most emotionally relatable books I've ever read. I think,
3: oh, completely. Even though
2: the situation, obviously, so um, Penelope is the heir to this. unbelievably huge beautiful house and Mm. um, her new friends Charlotte and Harry essentially invite themselves over for the weekend and she's never had friends over in her life before Yeah, and she's panicking so much over what they're going to eat what they're going to do like she's like arranged all her board games to be like maybe this she's like over prepared and she's freaking out and they arrive early and she's kind of still in her like lounging around clothes and they're immediately having a great time and then she realises how silly it was to worry And they have, they have, and for me, it's like when I knew that this book was going to be much more than a reading assignment for me, that it was going to be something I remembered for a long time, where they have this weekend where it's just them wandering around the house, getting pissed, eating some biscuits (laughs) with some cheese. Do you know what
3: I mean? And oh, I mean, Snowfall and 45s. Snowfall and 45s, that's the name of the chapter. And yeah, it's just that idea of being with people who put you completely at ease. And Charlotte does. Mm -hmm. And. I think you messaged me while you were reading it, didn't you? And you were yeah. like, "Well, this is the romance. It's oh, Penelope and, and I maintain that it is, yeah." yeah.
2: Because so the, the, the big, ro- I think it's a very, it's a very quietly queer book to me. Mm. Um, and I know there's a kind of temptation to read everything as queer these days because you <laughs> didn't want to. Um, but uh, so the, obviously the main romance is between Harry and Penelope or it's supposed to be. Yes. But for me, if the book has any flaws and it has so few. So few. Is that I do feel sometimes that relationship is a bit tacked on but only because the depth of... Of feeling between Penelope and Charlotte
3: is so huge and so, like, it's so romantic you know? I mean, I think Eva Rice deliberately leaves it quite ambiguous at the end Mm -hmm. so, um, you know they don't really get together, you know like Harry comes back from Paris and it's definitely the implication that something is going to blossom between them and it's, you know, he's finally back and it's kind of the conclusion. But she very deliberately doesn't tell Mm. us that they get married, that, you know, 10 years in the future they're still together. And I think that's because they don't. I think... No. No, I think, you know, there is um, a kind of culmination of something there for yeah. Penelope and Harry and I'm glad because I think they she do. writes fantastic sexual tension for like oh, yeah. you know, for a very chaste book yeah you know. oh yeah but like that night that they're snogging at the Ritz oh. and they you know and he keeps kissing her in the taxi and on the doorstep even after oh, they're not good. performing anymore in front of people at this party yeah um, and that's all gorgeous. And like, I want them to hook up, I do. But I think it's, yeah, I think it's quite deliberate that yeah, the, the long lasting relationship from the book is, is Charlotte. Yeah.
2: And what's very, very telling as well is that like there is an, uh, an epilogue uh, mm. or an afterword, I suppose you could call that. And the afterword is, um, you know, Elvis
3: Presley came
0: yeah and Johnny
3: ray was forgotten yeah Will he'll always be my love <laughs> yes i love the way that she interweaves real pop culture yeah like i don't i can't explain why there's something about that that just gives me a little thrill and i i love yes. the fact she's there's a great bit where she says people don't believe me when i tell them that i first heard elvis presley um on new year's eve 1955 mm-hmm. because he didn't break through in the uk till 1956 at least and yeah, I can't. I have nothing deep to say about that, but there's it's something I love lovely. about those real life kind of, she's just, you really believe that Penelope was out there and she's right on the cusp of two different eras. She's yeah. got one foot in the past and then she's got one foot in what we now know as the kind of glamorous rock and roll. Totally. Um, everything that came to define the second half of the 20th century and she's right there kind of straddling them both. And there's like this really playful thing with sort of London
2: lore as well like this beautiful thing with the parakeets
3: oh the parakeets the yes the parakeets I do you know I got my pen out when I read that bit and I almost shed a tear and I sort of underlined it really hard so <laughs> we've been doing this whole podcast with the shiniest eyes but I it's, it's like,
2: it's like who's gonna cry chicken oh my god <laughs> do you want me to find parakeet? I would the love to find it um, so I think for clarity for anybody who doesn't live in London there's sort of a myth that, uh, in, in many parts of London especially in like bigger parks like Greenwich Park there are green green and yellow very tropical parakeets and there's a lot of wondering about how these parakeets got here and there's even a sort of a rumour that Jimi Hendrix once sort of set them free in Covent Garden oh yeah I heard uh, Mick Jagger Mick Jagger yeah. so nobody ever nobody knows. really knows and maybe they migrated here but that's quite boring um,
3: and so this book does offer an explanation for it so she's just set the parakeets free. I set them free on the way out of town. Where, I demanded. Richmond somewhere. I don't know. I asked the driver to stop where he thought the birds would be happy and I just opened the cage and off they flew. Um, she says they probably won't last a day in this weather. Oh, I wouldn't bank on it, said Dinego comfortingly. Who knows, maybe there'll be thousands of wild parakeets all over London in 50 years' time. And it's just such a little in-joke. It But is. it's very satisfying. It really, and like... London is a great um, character in the book, generally. Yeah. And I know that's a bit of a cliche, and particularly for a Londoner, to be like, oh, I love mm. it when London is basically like the sixth character in the book. But or it is. But it is. And and particularly because um, Penelope lives in Wiltshire mm. in this great, crumbling, stately home. and But she is forever getting the train in. So she yeah. gets the train into London, seemingly about three and or I four times a week. And
2: I love the sort of... Um, we don't just like zoom to different places. We we really get a sense that she has to get the tube yes, and then the train Absolutely. and then she either needs to walk from the station or she gets picked up yeah. by John. Like that sort of, the admin of it makes the
3: whimsicalness sing even more. Exactly. You know? Completely. When she gets on the train and she orders herself a milky cup of tea yeah. and she's watching the kind of drab suburbia whiz by the window and, you know, we've all had that moment. I think everybody feels a bit romantic on trains, mm-hmm. you know, when you're not standing in the aisles anyway when you've got a seat. Um, <laughs> it also does that lovely... Um, slightly ridiculous thing of people walking vast distances in London so yes. she'll just be like oh you know and I, I left Aunt Claire's in Kensington and I just walked to Paddington and then I <laughs> it's like come on mate Yeah, no shoes <laughs> and, um, and you know a lot of the little modern day details so like they get in the uh, taxi with the Wentworth twins who are these kind of frightening yes. terrifying are they, are they based on someone or something? I don't know maybe some maybe some Mitfords or something I'm not yeah. sure But uh, and then they go to Jay Sheiky and they have this kind of slap-up dinner, mm. which the Wentworth twins pay for. <laughs> and there's a tiny part of me that's like, if I keep moving in the right circles, maybe one day someone will take me to J. Sheeky and buy me a Christ. Dover Soul. <laughs> there's an
2: interesting thing with, like, um, sort of class and everything. Because, like, like you, you meet Charlotte and Harry and you get the sense that they're sort of, like, middle class-ish kind of thing. Yeah. Because they have this, like, you know, they don't really have much money, but they've got a nice little house and like, there's lots of food around the place. And they, we hear about how Aunt Claire, their kind of benefactor, doesn't have that much money or whatever. Yes. But then in like a couple of chapters time, like Charlotte is being featured in the Evening Standard. Mm-hmm. And actually she is a much bigger deal...
3: Then, like, so Penelope is kind of an unreliable narrator in that sense, you know. I think it's very interesting, isn't it? I think it's that old money. So there's this real distinction between Marina, who is this American socialite Mm -hmm. who is very vulgar, purely on merit of being rich and recently rich. I think is is the impression we get. Um, But it's like the poor and posh thing I was saying. It's kind Mm -hmm. of we can like these characters more because they don't have money coming out of their ears. They're still undeniably privileged, but actually they're also they've got the weight of um, history kind of on their shoulders this idea Mm. that they've got they're, they're part of this social network they can't really afford to be in but they've got to keep up appearances yes and that's quite interesting. I think there's a scene where they go to a calf on Tottenham Court Road. With the Teddy boys. With Teddy boys. And they they meet um, Andrew the Ted, a the, a the T. A the T. A the T, who is Charlotte's crush and she's had this kind of tempestuous relationship and her aunt has made her break things up with him. And they go to this calf and, you know, they're very aware of the fact that they're kind of posh West London yeah. they're slumming socialite it. girls. And they're slumming yeah. it, but it's exciting. Yeah. You know, and they're in this greasy spoon. And then the, the next thing they know, they're being whisked off to Jay Shiki in a taxi. But the glamour was very much back in the calf. Yes, you know, and that's something I think we can kind of all relate to almost that idea of just being a little bit of a fish out of water, but in a very kind of exciting way, yeah, and Penelope
2: is just so excited that she can even hold a conversation with these people who mm-hmm. she's been hearing about for years, yeah, but she's never <laughs> met one before, yeah, I, I don't even know if I'm that clear
3: what a teddy boy is, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so um if you picture like Picture the guys in Greece, but without the leather jackets, Mm. they would have been in sharp suits and maybe like a kind of boot lace tie. A bit kind of Roy Orbison, that yeah, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. So that would have been the Teddy it's, Boys. It's so
2: strange that these boys who are sort of treated as kind of ne'er-do-wells or whatever throughout the book are just they're in suits.
3: Yes. <laughs> you know? they're, they're the most suit like suits. neutered bad boys that have yeah. ever existed. Well, the main reason that uh, Talitha objects to them is because they've got bad skin. Oh. Yeah. Because um, they're hanging around in their caps. And it is, it's funny because it is very chaste, but actually not as chaste as it could be. Yeah. And there are mentions of sex. And you know, Penelope's always blushing at things. But actually I think I the first time I read it, when she's just getting off with Harry at the Ritz in front of everybody and she's drunk like two bottles of champagne. Mm. I think I thought that was quite scandalous. Yeah. For the book that it is and the story that she's telling. What's really interesting about Penelope is um it's that
2: classic case of the the kind of unreliable narrator thing of um she regards herself as this sort of dowdy nothing. Mm. And she thinks that she never has says the right thing and she never knows what she's doing. But actually, her people's reactions to her are completely at odds oh, with that. Yeah. People find her very beautiful, very captivating, very witty. Mm. Like, she often says things. She's um, the queen of, like, she says something and she's like, oh, well, didn't you know that? Or something like that. But And she's saying it quite innocently, but it's coming out like an incredibly
3: icy barb. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, she doesn't know her own power. No, not at all. That's what's so lovely about her. Yeah, completely. And she is used as bait in this situation with marina where she is there to make marina jealous and want harry back again and she is used specifically because he knows that she will get under marina's skin Mm. is the phrase that he keeps using and i think at first you kind of think it's just because she's meant to be very young and innocent and pretty you know and that'll do it but actually then i think as the book goes on you realize no no it's because she's got something Mm. interesting and she is clever and funny. You do, yeah. You realise that like her ending up at that lunch at that
2: fateful sort of like bus stop meeting Mm. was no accident and there is something about her which is what makes it such a dream book to read as a teenager and I wish I had read it at that age because I think I think I would have really benefited from that because everyone does need to feel like
3: they are the special kind yes. of person and they do have You've something about noticed. them. You've been noticed. You've been chosen. Yeah. Yeah. It's that... Um. I've actually I've got a bit in, in my book where I refer to it. And this was not my idea. This, uh, my editor summed it up as this and I thought it was so brilliant. It's the you're a wizard, Harry moment. Yes. It's that idea that you, out of everybody, have been noticed. You know, the finger has come through the crowd and said you're special. Oh, completely. And that's like...
2: I mean, everyone knows about the, the hero's journey in storytelling, which is this sort of circular um, thing that all, whether they're Star Wars or Harry Potter or the Bible or whatever, it's that somebody is in some sense divine from birth. Mm-hmm. They live a normal life, but then they're noticed and then they go on their
3: quest. And that's that's everything. Yeah, you know? completely. And Although, we need that. Interestingly with this, I guess, it's that is kind of subverted because actually Penelope is born into, she's born special because yeah. she's born into this ridiculous house, which is often referred to as one of the great houses. Yeah, of one, our, of the the, one of the last remaining great houses. the last remaining houses. And I think that's something actually as readers that it's quite difficult to really even understand in 2018 because yeah. I don't know anyone who grew up in a stately home. <laughs> no. And, you know, they talk about... And if you and do, these, you kind of resent them as well. Yeah, oh God, completely. Like, and, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, I can't even imagine being able to be friends with somebody who kind of came from that kind of background. But... The thing that ultimately ends up freeing them, and I don't know, are we doing spoilers? We're doing spoilers. We're doing spoilers. are all books. People can just get with it. Sure. The thing that ultimately ends up freeing uh, Penelope and Inigo and their mother is Milton Magna Hall burning to the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of second crescendo, really, of the I book. I have never read a Tumbling House novel yeah. where it didn't burn to the ground in the yeah. end. It's
2: very Manderley, <laughs> oh, you know.
3: Yeah, do you know what I hadn't really even thought about Rebecca, but it's so true. Mm. Yeah, but but it's I think it's still a bit of a surprise. Did yeah. you expect it? Were you waiting yes, for it? Yes, I was waiting for okay, it. Okay, so yes. I wasn't. Well, um, obviously you were seventeen. So I was seventeen. I didn't <laughs> what know. What did you know about troops, <laughs> <laughs> troops and traditions, troops and traditions? So I was shocked by that, yeah. and I think particularly when you find out that the fire is started by her mother, by her
2: mother, by her
3: mother, who has very sweetly saved Penelope's favorite dress, the guinea pig all of uh, Inigo's uh, records. And yeah, she's hidden them in the hen house. Yeah. But she's burned the house in down. A, in a very sort of clumsy, you know, not yeah. very subtle way. And and has burnt the house down. Um, but it's a fresh start for all of them. And so actually that idea that Penelope is special, but not in the way that everyone's already told her she is, yes. I think is something that's really quite lovely. It's very lovely. And yeah.
2: actually, what, um, speaking of um, Rebecca and Des mm. um the mother in the book, this isn't really related, I think, said, she really reminded, have you read or seen My Cousin Rachel?
3: No, do you know what? I haven't, and I haven't, which is quite <laughs> bad. Um, but I, you said that you picture Talitha as Rachel Vice. I do. And yeah. I think because of,
2: of that film Interesting. and the book. Um, because the whole thing with um, My Cousin Rachel is this sort of very exotic, beautiful woman. Um, comes to visit the stately home belonging to her cousin and then he completely falls in love with her and then there's this whole sort of thing of like whether or not she's a witch who's poisoning him Oh, and uh, then she she dies. (laughs) (laughs) And she dies before she can kill him. Um, But like this is very much like a version of my cousin Rachel mm. where like she has to keep on living in the house and like her end game just keeps living <laughs> like when when you have no end game <laughs> yeah. and you're just like well
3: I just have to keep this sort of house now that's it i'm just trapped here yeah. and it is it's there's something very kind of uh, fairy tale about it it's yeah. like, it's like she has absolutely been cursed and that's the only way out is yeah, she to she, let she, the she house fell in love die. when she was a teenager yeah. and then he died when she
2: was still a teenager, still a teenager basically yeah. and then she has to spend the rest of her life Being like having to play the role of the dowager and the yeah and the widow and the sort of being horrible
3: to her children and she has she wants to get out of it and you can see her wanting. Yeah. But she can't That's because it. she still lives there. And and the mask slips every so often. Penelope kind of says she yeah. uh, she laughs in spite of herself. She wants to think of herself as this very gloomy, melancholic, yes. tragic figure. But actually underneath it she has a wicked sense of humour and, and a great sort of spot. And she actually loves having people around and yeah. she's
2: painted herself. And I think grief does this to people. Mm. You paint a picture of yourself that you think is what you're supposed to be That's now. That's it.
3: You are the victim, you are a tragic figure. Yeah, and yeah. then you just
2: see these little, like daffodil shoots of her personality coming up as young people come back into the house yes. and she just completely falls in love with life again completely. not completely
3: but you know she, <laughs> she will do she <laughs> yeah yeah i think you believe that after she kind of gets with rocky and yes. she will probably go to america and like feel the sun on her bones and then it'll be okay
2: yeah it'll all be fine yeah
3: I identified with Penelope and Charlotte in different ways of being sort of a bit ungainly and feeling mm. a little bit sort of large in this world of tiny, dainty women. Yeah. Uh, still do, And to you, be you really get the sense that both
2: Charlotte and Penelope are like, they're you know, they're well-made women. Yes. You know? That's it. They're, they're, both, t- they're both tall. They're
3: both tall. And isn't it nice they're both allowed to be tall? Yeah. Because it often feels, I think, in books that you would they would have to be opposites, right? One of them would have to mm. be sort of tall and willow and fair and one of them would have to be small and dark and petite. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite nice that they are sort of just different different versions of the same, you know, mm. the, and I identify, um, obviously, I think we're all meant to identify with Penelope and Charlotte is spoken about in such glowing terms that if you said you identify with Charlotte, it would be...
2: Yeah, it's like identifying but, with Jo on Little Women. Right, It's like, exactly. get a life. It's like knowing you're
3: a Gryffindor, yeah.
2: Oh, um, are you Are you the most important character? Are you the Carrie Bradshaw? <laughs> are you Anne Boleyn? <laughs>
3: but, but the one thing I do identify with Charlotte in is that she, she wears weird clothes she does, and yeah. that was my youth. Like you know, I I couldn't help myself. I would get mercilessly teased on the streets of Worthing for wearing weird things I'd made myself. Um, and she kind of paints her shoes in these kind of yeah, and she makes her own coat. She makes her own coat, and you know, I think there's this idea that although she's no one quite, understand, quite understands her at the time, but she'll go on to sort of and blossom she has and,
2: complete faith in that. Like no. You are wrong.
3: You think this is weird, but... Trust me. Trust me. Yeah. This is good. And it's an odd thing, I think, that teenage, um, yeah, that real juxtaposition between being on the one hand, painfully wanting people to accept you and like you and being terrified to stand out and wanting mm. to really be part of the crowd, but also teenagers get these weird bursts of self-confidence yeah. that yeah. make us go out in these strange costumes or do odd things or take these risks or talk to people at parties. And nobody knows why. You, know, you suddenly, you come think, why did I do that? Yeah, but, yeah. it's yeah. weird instinct
2: that's so hard to explain. That's it. Like monogamy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and why do they do that? <laughs> Yeah, I
3: think it sums that up so brilliantly.
2: I'm really curious about um, what you think of the sort of titular secret of the book.
3: Oh, yeah. Which
2: is, which it's an odd title for the book, considering... It is an odd title. Um, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's intriguing and it's great and it mm. sounds nice. Um, but the the secret of the book is something that kind of comes back in the end, which is that Penelope's mother... And Charlotte's aunt, yes. Aunt Claire and aunt Claire. Talitha, yeah, um, they are actually in a lifelong love rivalry because before Penelope's late father met Talitha, he briefly met Aunt Claire, yes. and shared a beautiful
3: evening with yes. her. Yes. I mean, we say briefly, literally like three hours, three they hours, spent together. and she was in her thirties and he was nineteen. Yeah, yeah, I think it's. the only bit of the book that I don't quite buy. I don't really (laughs) buy it either. Um, And I think Aunt Claire's a fantastic character and the fact that she's dying at the end and that gets revealed and she spent the whole book writing yeah. her memoirs. That I love. I think I'm on board with all that's of that. That's the secret,
2: surely. Yes, yeah. yeah. And
3: I think that's that's wonderful. Um, the fact that she knew of Penelope's father and of Talitha and they were these kind of shadowy figures at arm's yeah. reach and she had kind of wondered about them. That I buy. The whole she was the other woman because yeah. they spent this evening together and, and had dinner and by spending an evening together they had dinner they just had dinner <laughs> and she was suck. married yeah. like they they had dinner she was married she had a son and he basically said to her you're bored you need to go and see the world and don't worry yeah. about your husband and don't worry what people think and so she did and that's lovely yeah but I think you're right. I think it's a tiny bit of a stretch to believe that um, Talitha had been tortured by the idea of this woman, Claire, that yeah. he'd spent this one afternoon with. Mm-hmm. You know, before they even met. Um, yeah. yeah, I That is a bit weird. It, plot wise, <laughs> I don't. I didn't
2: quite buy it. But the more I've sat with it, mm. the more I've I've come to. Because I think. That it, well, this wasn't her debut, was it? Her debut?
3: No, there was one. There were one or two before, but this was the first one. I think that really it went big. Went big.
2: I I can understand what she's trying to because I think so much of the novel what it's really about is the sort of the transcendence that kind of passes between two people when they really get each other. Yes, and and like there's there's this beautiful scene when um it's that, that first lovely big weekend when they all spend together and they're they're all sort of like listening to music together and. Penelope has that feeling that I think we, everyone has had at least once or twice in their lives where some kind of weird vibrating golden energy, even though you're doing nothing and you're yeah. just sitting around listening to music and there's a sense of like everything is right. Everyone's supposed to be in this room. That's it. This is magical. Yeah. It and all falls into place. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of like transcendent vibe echoes through the novel in such a beautiful way, in mm. a way that like
3: it's so hard to describe even human to human. Yes, yeah. And that feels like what that is about. Yeah, it's very subtle. You know, there is no kind of supernatural or um, magical element in the book, apart from these tiny bits. So Harry being a magician. Yes. And, you know, there's this little um, subplot with this China figurine that they smash and Harry uh, the next day magically has put it back in its place and Mm -hmm. there's not a mark on it and you can't see where he's glued it together. And then Aunt Claire sells this figurine at the end for loads of money. And that's going to keep Harry after she's gone. Um, But apart from tiny things like that, you know, there's no overt um, sort of magical element to the book. Yet, I think you're completely right. There is just this very subtle sort of vibration of destiny and fate. And things kind of being as they are meant to be. And so I think... Yeah, with that in mind, I can accept the ending, and I can yeah. I can buy this idea that Aunt Claire and Talitha were somehow living in tandem, and they were sort yeah. of connected by this one amazing man. Um, and it's nice; like, I'm cool with it. It's fine. Cool I wouldn't I wouldn't change it. I don't know yeah. what I would want it to be instead. But it is just one of those endings that kind of makes you go, "Okay, are we sure? <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah."
2: <laughs> I feel like when you're writing a period novel, that's because like. These like characters are are being raised by people who went through the first and second world war, and you need. It's almost like you need to assign destiny because yeah. life is so random and chaotic and yeah. tragic and strange that yeah. you need to be like, but it was meant to be this
3: way for it not to seem like a total piece of shit life. Oh, completely. <laughs> you know? And it's interesting because religion is not really a big part of this. Not at all at I don't all think. which i think is quite unusual for books set in that era i mean they go to church they have the family pew in the village church and they yeah. go to church and they sing hymns but that's it i don't think they are i don't no. remember it's a very secular book very secular i don't remember tell if they're praying or yeah. any, any talk about that um, which is interesting because so many of those books of that Era the Nell Stretfields and things did always have religion just as a kind of yeah. comfy armchair in the corner, you know. It yeah, was, it was and, and, and preachers coming in and out, and yeah. that's it. And it was all tea with the vicar, and that was just accepted. So I think uh that is quite interesting. So maybe that element of destiny is sort of subbing in almost for for religious belief in a way that does feel yeah. a bit more modern. It's something interesting as well. I think with the the parental relationships and that age. That the girls are in the book is the first age, I think, that you really begin to see your parents as fallible humans. Yes. And that really sort of strikes you. And it's that age at which you suddenly become aware of their worries and their insecurities, and also start looking at your parents and seeing the ways in which you're probably going to turn into them, mm. whether you like it or not. It lets the sort of teenage characters wander among the world of the adults quite freely in a way that's really satisfying. So even there's Christopher, the art- antiques dealer that Charlotte works yes, for. Yes, I can never get a handle on how old Christopher is oh, supposed to be. yeah, the maths does not add up, no. by the way. Because I did. I, was... I thought he was like 70 when I first
2: yes. met him. I was like, what, is he like, he's dating Charlotte he's now? he's going to date Charlotte.
3: <laughs> well, she says, Penelope says that he was um, friends with her father at school. Which would mean that he's in his forties. He was, yeah, in his early forties. But then he spent this night with Aunt Claire <laughs> in 1935. They supposedly had this kind of tryst in Rome. Right. And well, who he, didn't with Aunt Claire, seemingly? Well, he <laughs> didn't have a tryst with Aunt Claire. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then he would have been, I guess, maybe 19-year-olds were kind of her, her thing. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Aunt Claire. I'm sorry to tarnish your memory. Um, but yeah, the maths R-I-P. of that are weird. It doesn't quite yeah. it doesn't quite add up. Um, but it, it sort of doesn't really matter either. No. I like the idea that Aunt Claire is almost timeless. She's a timeless e- she's <laughs> she, yeah. ush-
2: she ushers all young men into into <laughs> It's a rite of passage. <laughs> yes, that means that she had a lovely evening with um, her father and then went straight to his friend.
3: Oh God, I hadn't even thought about that yeah weird yeah but you're meant to buy into I think the idea of this London society where everybody knows each other I mean not even London just the whole of England (laughs) you know it extends to Wiltshire and beyond yeah Um, yeah yeah. but and everyone's just running into each other again constantly yeah (laughs) Um, right so we should probably start to
2: wrap up even though I could genuinely talk about this for years I know
3: Um,
2: but I'll end on you know uh,
3: would you recommend this book and why specifically would you recommend this book Um, I would 100% recommend this book I would recommend you put down whatever you're reading at the moment and read this yeah. book instead it is um i can never talk about this book without using food adjectives like it is a delicious book it's the kind of book you drink down yes. you know you wolf it down like ginger scones um but at the same time it's really substantial and yeah. there's so many different things going on in it i have read it probably about mm, five or six times i think yeah in, in the last uh, i can see this being an annual years. read for me yeah yeah it's so comforting it's, it's comforting but not in a like you say it's not a guilty pleasure in any kind of way it's not yeah. like candy floss it's like um, yeah. yeah it's a good roast it's a good Sunday roast and yeah. a sit by the fire afterwards in a pair of yes. big socks and a brisk walk in the chill and it's, also
2: this is coming out in the festive period so it is a perfect Christmassy book as well oh
3: absolutely because I think it covers about a year in their lives yes. but a lot of it feels very snowy very Christmasy very wintry oh yeah. yeah it has a great New Year's Eve scene I, I'm a for New Year's Eve in books because I always have bad New Year's Eves. Aww. Um, no, it's fine. Yeah, it's I've fine. had a couple of okay ones, but, yeah. but oh, I mean, disappointing ones are the. They're so overhyped, yeah. but I love a good a good Christmas in New year in a book. I adore. Yeah,
2: I love any scene where like people are singing Old Lang Syne in the background and someone is outside crying. That's <gasps> like grow- yes, <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> Sitting on the
2: doorstep in a party frock with your shoes on. <laughs> He's you're, left me.
3: You're talking about the Sex in the City movie. You do realize that oh my god I am. the thing is I always cry whenever old Lang Syne is used yeah. in anything <laughs> oh I'm not completely um, what were you asking me yeah read the book okay, <laughs> I- <laughs> read the fucking book I just think it's beautiful and I would also recommend um, The Misinterpretation of Tara Jupp which is have not is- read this okay so tell so, me about it oh I meant to bring it with me to lend you and I forgot I'm so okay, sorry so, um, so that is a follow up of sorts so it's set in 60s mm-hmm. and it does feature some crossover characters um, and love notes for Freddie as well which was, I think was Eva Rice's recent one Mm. that's also gorgeous like i love her writing so much the weird thing is is that like um
2: part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast in the first place is that often I read books like this and um, I immediately, I want to um, find a criticism or, a, or like a, a nice meaty essay by some a writer I like who's really taken it apart and all you can find is Goodreads. Yes. And, um, because it was, so this book was huge. Mm-hmm. No one really seemed to have reviewed it. No. Um, there I found one thing on The Guardian, on the whole Guardian... <laughs> Of somebody um talking about the um audio release date, right? Saying kind of it's a pretty good beach read, but Rosamund Pike is you know a bit too sexy for the reader, and that's basically it. And oh, I find that's and, and, and mad. like
3: yeah. I d-
2: like there's actually there's an, Eva Rice's in, like Wikipedia page is too small,
3: Forty and small. her father
2: is quite famous as well, I think, right? Tim Rice, who's he?
3: Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's,
2: you know, right? Well, I don't care. Longtime
3: co-collaborator. So basically, you, if you want to read about Eva Rice,
2: all you want, all you'll get is Tim is, Rice is her father, and that pisses me off. I
3: know, no, it's so unfair, and I, she's just so supremely yeah. talented. She's such a gorgeous, gorgeous writer. I really want her to be my friend.
2: <laughs> Maybe she will after this. Maybe you, she all you've will. done is
3: is kiss her
2: <laughs> for the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we didn't actually talk about any of the things you have going on. So if you want to quickly tell us about your. Oh, your me. Book
3: and, oh. and yourself
2: and your. Um, socials and all that kind of
3: stuff. Um, so my book is called What Would the Spice Girls Do? Um, if you've been a fan of our discussions of youth culture, nostalgia, nostalgia, pop music, bonding with people over what you love. Absolutely. Female very, friendship. Yeah. We should have mentioned it more. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Clothes. No, it's fine. I didn't want to do that thing of being like, actually, this is very relevant to my book. Yeah. Um, but imagine everything we've just talked about transposed from 1955 to 1996. A much more romantic, era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah and I'm doing a few events and things like that um,
2: follow yeah. me on Twitter You right? can get you on at Lauren Bravo you can or? get me on at Lauren Bravo thanks so much Lauren you've been amazing thank you so much for
3: having me yeah.
2: I loved The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets so much that I decided to track down its author Ava Rice to talk about her memories of writing the book and after my chat with Lauren Bravo the biggest question on my mind was where did Julian the Loaf come from?
0: when i was at boarding school I, I had this weird i don't know what i mean obviously i was desperately seeking attention at the time um but i decided to keep <laughs> making myself sound insane. keep keep a loaf of bread in a cage you did not i did i swear i mean i'm literally making myself sound
2: bonkers <laughs> this is the most like bonkers posh girl story of boarding Completely, school ever i, I, I know, love it and, and
0: I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, um, <laughs> that exactly it, it, it underlines all of that stuff and blazing technicolor but, but i felt like um for a few days, it was just—it was obviously some kind of attention-seeking thing that I was like, "Oh, he was keeping a loaf of bread in, in a cage called Julian," and I thought, "And, and oh, literally called Julian." Yeah, fabulous. And then, and then, and then I sort of lost interest in it, for, you know, after that, and decided that it was—it was a sign of, of um, some form of insanity. <laughs> um, but, but, but I remember thinking with Harry, the character of Harry, was so fun because I could kind of create my dream boy as a teenager like, and he is very much a dream boy who would I really fancied when I was 17 and why and, um, and, and by making him you know eccentric and brilliant at magic and looking a tiny bit like I always imagining him looking a bit like a kind of damaged David Bowie with the kind of because of his different kind yeah, of eyes, eyes yeah. and, um, and being um, you know being sort of slightly tormented by the wrong love and um, and that he, he was, he was I, I absolutely love him because he He sort of represented no boy that i had ever come across um, or or ever did when I was a teenager, but he was sort of like a manifestation of all the boys I kind of wanted to meet Mm. and wanted to find.
2: Thanks to Ava Rice for talking to me and thank you for listening. If you want to hear my whole conversation with Ava Rice where we talk in depth about Take That, Pony Books and Bad Book Covers, listen out for the bonus episode coming very soon. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Sentimental Garbage where I chat to Lucy Vine about Watermelon by Marion Keyes. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Barrell.